Well, we're on the third week of this series that's drawn from Jesus' parables, as Luke tells them. And we're looking at these parables all with a view to exploring the title of the series, which is, Who is My Neighbor? But also the corollary question of, what does it look like to actually be a neighbor, which is what Jesus does in that parable of the Good Samaritan, where the lawyer asks, who is my neighbor? Define neighbor for me so I know who to love as neighbor and to love as myself. And Jesus changes the question and says, who is it in this story that proved to be neighbor to the man stricken by the side of the road? That neighboring is very much a verb. It is something that moves in both directions. And uh, we're looking at that as we look at these parables and how they kind of expand our context and, and make our world bigger and include more and more and more people in that classification of neighbor and therefore heighten the challenge more and more and more for us for that question of what it means to be neighbor. And so keeping in mind the rule of context that I've been talking about, that it's very important to look at the questions and the situations that set up the telling of all of these parables, that this story that Jesus tells, the story of the great dinner that we're looking at today, is told in the context of a dinner party that takes place at the home of one of the leaders of the Pharisees. So this is a part of the religious aristocracy, and he's probably entertaining a lot of religious aristocrats at this particular party. And Jesus has been invited as well because he's kind of this person of interest in the Pharisaic community. He's teaching the scriptures. He's talking about righteousness. He's proclaiming the kingdom of God. And so people are listening and they're checking him out and they are watching him and he is watching them. That's the, the context of this whole story. And and what happens, and I'm going to, to actually back up to verse 1 in chapter 14 and start reading there in just a moment, but the party is a situation that occasions a parable which explores uh, humility and hospitality and also explores position and power. And so let's look at Luke 14, verses 1 through 24. On one occasion, when Jesus was going to the house of a leader of, of the Pharisees to eat a meal on the Sabbath, they were watching him closely. Just then, in front of him, there was a man who had dropsy. And Jesus asked the lawyers and the Pharisees, Is it lawful to cure people on the Sabbath or not? But they were silent. So Jesus took him and healed him and sent him away. And then he said to them, If one of you has a child or an ox that has fallen into a well, will you not immediately pull it out on the Sabbath day? And they could not reply to this. When he noticed how the guests chose places of honor, he told them a parable. When you are invited by someone to a wedding banquet, do not sit down at the place of honor in case someone more distinguished than you has been invited by your host. And the host who invited both of you may come and say to you, give this person your place. And then in disgrace, you would start to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down at the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. 
And then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. He said also to one who had invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors in case they may invite you in return and you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. One of the dinner guests on hearing this said, blessed is anyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And then Jesus said to him, someone gave a great dinner and invited many. At the time for the dinner, he sent a slave to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a piece of land and I must go out and see it. Please accept my regrets. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to try them out. Please accept my regrets. And another said, I have just been married and therefore I cannot come. So the slave returned and reported this to his master. And then the owner of the house became angry and said to his slave, go out at once into the streets and lanes of the town and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the slave said, sir, what you ordered has been done and there is still room. And then the master said to the slave, go out into the roads and lanes and compel people to come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those who were invited will taste my dinner. Let's pray. Lord, take us into this story and help us to find our place in it. And above all else, help us to smell the food and to know that you have invited us to a great feast and are enticing us to come in. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of the things I miss about not having young children or any grandchildren is that I don't get to read children's books that often. Marianne and I loved reading books to our kids, and I want to share with you one book in particular today that I have loved, and it's called the Big Orange Splot by uh, Daniel Pinkwater. I won't read the whole thing. It's a phenomenal book though. It's my go-to book when I go to baby showers and they ask us to bring a book, that's the one that I always give. And The Big Orange Splot is this interesting book that tells the story of Mr. Plumbean who wakes up one morning to find that a seagull has flown over his house and for some reason dumped a can of orange paint, and Pinkwater says no one knows why, dumped a can of orange paint on the roof of Mr. Plumbean's house. And, and Mr. Plumbean lives on what would be called by all of the neighbors on this street, a neat street, where all of the houses are the same and all of the yards look alike, where the homeowners association has only one shade of whatever shade that is that you can paint your house and all of the houses were the same and everybody liked it that way and everybody celebrated the fact that it was such a neat street 
And the neighbors, when they saw the orange splot, said, oh, Mr. Plumbing, you have to fix that orange splot. You need to paint. You need to get rid of that orange splot. And he says, yeah, I'll do that. And then he waits and he thinks and he goes to bed and he sleeps and he goes to the store and gets some paint and contemplates it a while and gets some more stuff. And as he paints, he creates a new house, slide three, <laughs> which is definitely different than the others on the street. And it's, it's hilarious as this whole process goes on in the book. And the neighbors are all saying he's lost his mind. What's he doing? And they tell him, you, what have you done? And finally, they elect one of his next door neighbors to go and speak with him about it. And the two men sit outside in the yard and, and they drink lemonade. And Mr. Plumbean explains why he's done what he has done to this neighbor who has come to try and change his mind to restore his house back to what it was when they had a neat street. And he says, my house is me and I am it. My house is where I want to be and it looks like all my dreams. And so the man leaves and what happens is that he then begins to contemplate what Mr. Plumbean had said. And gradually, first of all, starting with this man, gradually all of the neighbors approach him and one by one change their minds about their house. And the neat street starts to look like that. And all of the neighbors say our house, our street is us and we are it, our street is where we like to be and it looks like all our dreams. There's disruption that occasions this story. A messenger, the seagull, I think a divine messenger in this particular story, the seagull is the divine messenger who creates a disruption and gets the neighborhood thinking about what it really is and who's actually in it. The divine messenger opens things up by creating a mess, and the mess becomes the opportunity to create a new street, a street in some ways that is neater than when everything was the same. And the parable that Jesus tells functions in pretty much the same way. There's a blowing out of the walls of the neighborhood a blowing out of the walls of religion, if you will, calling people beyond their stunted imaginations, and in doing so makes the neighborhood bigger, and everyone has to decide whether or not they want to live in that broad and open space. As I said earlier, there's a lot of watching going on in this parable. Watching is the thing we do as we wait to hear whether or not a person is our neighbor. We watch, we wait, and we listen, and we look for some clue. Are they like me? What are they talking about? What are they saying that makes me want to turn around and run away? <laughs> what is happening in this conversation as we watch 
that reveals the other to us. And the watching that's going on in this room at this time is, first of all, watching on the part of the Pharisees gathered, they're watching Jesus. He's someone who has attracted their attention, someone to whom they're very drawn. And yet, here's the man with dropsy, here's the Sabbath, and here's Jesus. And Jesus kind of goes, well, might as well drop the can of paint. (laughs) (laughs) And he heals the man on the Sabbath, and everyone's feathers are ruffled. And yet, what he says to them you know, don't you do this if you have an ox in a, in a ditch? And don't you do this if you have a child in need? Don't you do something that works on the Sabbath? And none of them could respond to that. So the story continues because as the story continues, we see the ways in which Jesus is also watching them and noticing their peculiarities. And he sees this whole saga and almost opera going on around who's choosing what seat. And that leads him to tell a story. Don't just try to position yourself at the head of the table, but go to the other end of the table and be invited up. It's kind of typical wisdom literature. It's far more fun to be invited to the head of the table than to be told to go to the back of the room. So Jesus is just being very practical in like the Proverbs and the the wisdom literature. But bottom line in all of this is, Everybody's kind of figuring out who's the neighbor and who isn't. Who's close to the center and and who isn't. So when Jesus tells this parable about the second second thing, there's so many elements in this thing, I've got to remind myself here. When he invites people to invite the crippled and the lame and poor and the blind to their dinners, not just the people of, of high position. I mean, he's basically looking at the guest list and saying, I don't see any of those folks here. Okay. But as Jesus says this, someone in the room says, blessed is anyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And this is kind of a pious outburst. And the way I know that is because of Ken Bailey. If you've ever read anything by Ken Bailey on the parables, you know that he takes you deep into the parables and helps you to understand their cultural context, their their sort of Palestinian village context, but also their historic roots in, in the scriptures. And this was a pious expression. And it was an expression that essentially refers to the great banquet in heaven that's a part of the tradition of the Old Testament. And for the prophets like Isaiah and Isaiah 25, that great banquet was something that gathered in and included all people, especially the outcasts. It was like this great healing event that took place, this sense of unity and reconciliation and redemption that takes place when the kingdom is ushered in. And so when this is all sort of playing out and this man says, blessed is anyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God, He's not coming from that inclusive view of the prophets. He's coming from a view of the Pharisees, which saw those who entered the kingdom of God as those who were best at keeping the purity laws. The insiders, the cool kids, were the ones who knew the rules and and followed them. And what's more is, then this is the horrid thing about the view that kind of came into being during that intertestamental period, after the exile and before John the Baptist, that 
the crippled and the lame or anyone who was marred in some way could not sit at the table because they just didn't reflect the wholeness of who should be at the table. I mean, this is the ultimate of the cool kids. <laughs> and they all get to sit together at lunch in the kingdom, so to speak. This man was not coming from the inclusive view. He was coming from the exclusive view. And this room populated with people of the exclusive view. And Jesus expected liturgical response at this point. Again, they're watching and waiting and listening for it is a, a supplication that says, Oh Lord, may we be among the righteous and be counted without blemish, worthy to sit with the men of renown in that day. In other words, Oh Lord, let us be at the cool kids table. How wonderful it will be to sit with all of the good people in the kingdom of heaven. That was the response he was waiting for. But instead, Jesus did what Jesus does, what he tells a story. And he tells that story of the, the wealthy man who has a great banquet. And let me just point out a couple of specifics about the story. And I, I read these in Bailey's book. The background there is, is really helpful to help us to understand just what's going on in this story and, and kind of how outlandish it is. And uh, next week, Adrian's preaching for us, and she's preaching out of the parable of the prodigal son, and there's the same kind of thing going on in the parable of the prodigal son. There's a lot of really outlandish stuff that happens in that parable. But traditionally, in, in banquets like this in the village, in a Palestinian village, what was true was that uh, you issued two invitations. Everybody in a village knew what everybody else was doing. And so when the householder discovered that there was a clear weekend or whatever it, it might be, he issued the invitation, hey, I'm going to throw a party. Let me know if you're going to come. You know, it's a typical sort of RSVP kind of situation so that he would know how much we don't usually have to do this. Uh, we don't have to slaughter the meat that we're going to uh, serve. But the, the householder needed to wonder about how much food was going to be needed, what animals needed to be slaughtered, what needed to be cooked. And so when you said yes, you meant yes, because you knew the trouble to which the householder would have to go in order to include you among the invited guests. There was no such option as we have on Evite today, maybe. <laughs> How in the blank does that help anybody? It doesn't help the attender. It doesn't help the host. Maybe. I'll show up if I have time. Maybe. Maybe. There was no maybe in this context. You were either coming or you weren't. And it was okay to not come. But if you said you were going to come, you needed to come. And so when the slave issues the second invitation, in other words, hey, the meat has been cooked. The party is ready to begin. So come to the party. All is now ready. Come. What Jesus then tells us is that no one could come that was originally invited. And then he gives us three specific examples of the kind of excuses that they made. And Bailey is really good at pointing out about how outlandish and arrogant and what affront there is in each of these refusals. Each of these excuses are notoriously bad excuses that are obvious lies. 
You don't, in that society, check out the oxen after you buy them. You check out your oxen before you buy it. In the same way with a piece of land. You don't buy the house, in our context, you don't buy the house on the phone and then go look at it. And then finally, there's the, the worst one of all is the guy who doesn't even say, please accept my uh, regrets that I can't come, but who says, I've just gotten married. Let your mind go with that. And um, he is doing the most offensive thing of all of them. First of all, he's talking about something very personal. And, you know, he's essentially saying, I'm going to have sex with my wife, so I can't come to your party. <laughs> Well, and that's absolutely abhorrent in this context. But the other thing is, is that he couldn't have possibly been married that weekend because the village would all be at the wedding and not at this party. And the party would not have been planned had there not been any conflicting event on that particular weekend. And Bailey is wonderful about going through all of this. And it, you know, it has you laughing out loud at that point just to... See, Jesus is really good at sort of turning up the volume and making things absolutely outlandish so you didn't miss the point. Here are three refusals to come that are not polite requests for dismissal, but actually are just an outright affronting, arrogant assertion that your party's not worth coming to. So we won't be there. Even though we said yes, we're not coming. So the householder expands the guest list. There's lots of food to be eaten, and he says, I want my house to be filled. The householder, instead of sulking about all of this, keeps his door open, but the original guest list, the insiders, the cool kids, decide together not to show up. And the householder states the obvious at the end of the parable. I guess none of those invited are hungry enough to show up. And I think this is one of the main points of this parable. As Jesus is talking to the religious insiders, he's really asking them to consider whether or not they're hungry for the kingdom of God. Robert Farrar Capon gives that line that I've quoted so many times, that the kingdom of God belongs to the littlest, the least, the last, the lost, and the dead. It belongs to those on the margins. It belongs to them because they're hungry. It belongs to them because it looks good to be offered a meal if you know you're hungry for it. And religion is seldom about admitting hunger. It's more about proving goodness, proving purity, proving worthiness. It's all about making sure that we have a neat street, assuring ourselves that we belong to those who have shown themselves to be worthy. It's not about hunger. And Jesus' point to the gathered guests at this party is really a question. Aren't you just even just a little bit hungry? Stop striving to get inside and listen for the invitation 
welcoming you to a feast that you can't possibly make for yourself. St. John in the Revelation, the Apocalypse, the, the last book of the Bible, chapters two and three of that book are letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor. And the last of those letters is a, a letter to the church at Laodicea, and it is my favorite. And it is just spot on in terms of the words that the resurrected Christ tells the angel of the church of uh, Laodicea to tell this church this. It was a very wealthy church in a very wealthy city. At one point, he says, you say I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. Yet you do not know that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And so at the end of that letter, he says, so therefore, Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, then I will come in and eat with him and he with me. We'll have fellowship together. Jesus isn't the bouncer at the front of a club, keeping out those who are not cool or who don't fit with what's going on inside. Here we have Jesus not as the host who bars the doors or restrains and restricts the guest list, but here we have Jesus as the guest. The guest who asks for access and then once inside, what happens is that we find that he's actually the host. The walls that we've made to feel safe start to come down. And we find ourselves at a satisfying feast that we could never make for ourselves. The point of the faith journey is not making sure that we are worthy enough to be on Jesus' guest list. It's about being hungry enough to actually pay attention to his invitation. Hungry enough to hear him knocking on the door and then inviting him in. And once he crosses that threshold, the roles somehow get reversed because that guest who has asked for access now becomes the host. And the place we occupy suddenly gets a lot bigger. And it gets a lot bigger because it has to get bigger as we move into the broad and open space of his love. Let's pray. Lord, slow us down long enough on this quest to be good that we might actually feel the hunger that motivates it that that restlessness in our hearts that compels us to try and work our way to you is actually a restlessness of knowing that we were made for you and we cannot rest until we rest in you. So help us to hear that invitation to the table, to eat and to drink, to find satisfaction, and to find that rest for our souls. For we pray in your name, amen.